Since its inception over a century ago, UT's student government has been the source of significant change on campus, as well as significant dysfunction. Today, we're exploring the history of student governance and how it brought us to today's entity that we know and love, or love to hate. Let's start at the beginning, in the year 1900. Up until this time, the only form of student governance was a self-enforced honor system to prevent cheating on quizzes. But on January 10, 1900, the entire student body met and drafted a constitution and set of bylaws to manage laundry bills, noise in the library, excessive absences from class, and more. It took a year for everybody to get on board, but by the 1902-1903 academic year, the Students' Association, SG's name until 1996, was up and running. To further tell the story, I talked to a UT alum with a unique knowledge of student government's past. All right, so uh, my name is David Goldstein. I graduated from UT uh, in Plan 2 in 1983 and from the law school in 1986. And for my senior honors thesis uh, in Plan 2, I wrote a what ended up being a book uh, called The Student Government Experience at the University of Texas at Austin, covering the, uh, the 50 years from, uh, let's see, it was 1932-33 to 82-83. Goldstein's thesis is nearly 500 pages long. Uh, it, it got way, way out of hand. Pretty much from the get-go, student government was turbulent, chaotic, and complex. The Students' Association was originally divided up into separate assemblies for men and women, but in 1917 consolidated into one co-ed Students' Assembly to unify against outside faculty influence. Division manifested in a different form, however, when students began to align with different political parties in the 1930s. The parties were not official, but candidates typically fell into what was known as the Greek clique or the independent clique, also known as the barbarians. According to Goldstein's thesis, this conflict would sometimes go beyond campaign season and decrease in assembly's effectiveness. But it wasn't until the 60s that things really began to fall apart. In the 60s and 70s, student government kind of lost touch with its constituency, which is the students. Um, when the student body was most concerned with events around the world. Student government was not really advocating for those things. And conversely, when the 60s ended and, you know, the student body started to kind of be much more focused on things that affected them, like how am I going to get a job and what should I major in and services on campus and things like that, at that point, student government was much more focused on external things. The students in power were part of an absurdist party that promised to avoid all issues. The student body was frustrated, and attendance at assembly meetings was so low they couldn't reach a quorum. They didn't have enough members there to even vote on legislation. And it got to a point where a small group of students said, you know, this is kind of a charade. Why don't we get rid of it? And that had been talked about for a couple of years. And somebody said, well, you can't get rid of student government. And there was a critic said, oh, yeah, just watch us. It was almost like a dare. Uh, here, hold my beer, you know. In 1978, every student was given the chance to vote on a referendum to end the Students' Association. The referendum passed. 
Here's an excerpt from a piece written by the editor of the Daily Texan after the administration approved the abolition. It is gone. It is but a chapter in our history. That phase of our collective lives is behind us, and with it we should cast away all feelings of bitterness and hopelessness. Never again should we hear cries of ineffective, self-glorifying, and impotent student governance. For those criticisms were appropriate for only what we had, not for what we can and what we should have. Let us not fall prey to expediency and hastily form yet another imperfect union, conceived in fear and plagued with age-old problems. Instead, we must take this opportunity and pause long enough to assess our problems, our strengths and weaknesses. For 75 years, we have lived with various forms of student government. Surely we can do without it for a short while as we calculate our fate. The Students' Association was resurrected in 1983 when the student body elected Hank the Hallucination as their newest president. His spot was eventually given to Paul Begala, future political advisor to President Bill Clinton, once the powers that be ruled a Daily Texan cartoon could not serve in office. If you look at you know, some of the people I interviewed, you, know, you had a governor, you had the former mayor of Austin, uh, you had you know, a judge, you know, a pretty prominent judge, you know, several other people like that who you know, for whom the the presidency was a bit of a stepping stone. You have the same thing with the students and stuff like that. Um, you know, which which kind of raises the question of what is the purpose of student government? And the, uh, you know, one obvious one is to benefit the students, but I think there is a secondary benefit. I didn't really talk about this a lot in the book because I kind of realized it later, but you know, it's a, it's a training ground. It's an education experience for people who will be politicians. Student government has a rich history, but that hasn't translated to a high turnout at the polls. Historically, low voter turnout could be due to political disillusionment. Uh, there was so frequently this disconnect between what student government was doing and what was really important to the students. Or simply because students didn't feel like walking to campus that day if it was rainy. According to Goldstein, during the 30s and 40s, if party rivalries were prevalent, turnout would be high, with between 60 and 74 percent of the student body voting. Whenever intergroup conflict was low, voter turnout was too, between 34 and 42 percent. Since 2011, turnout has hovered around 8,000 for the Executive Alliance election. With a student population around 50,000, that's a mere 16 percent of students voting. Last year, in an abnormally contentious campaign season, around 14,000 students voted. That's still only 28% of the student population. Ami Jean, one of this year's vice presidential candidates, says she hopes she and her running mate Cameron Goodman can embolden non-voters to participate in this year's elections. Especially uh, one of our goals was no matter who wins or loses, to be this is the most students who've ever voted in a campaign mm-hmm. because I mean, there's just 40,000 of us and for like less then what was it, thirteen hundred? Yeah. Mm. I'm just like that's just not enough to be yeah. speaking for forty thousand students. So then, how do we get all those students to want to vote? So, um, identifying groups that definitely have an opinion but haven't aren't necessarily always like they don't put the mic in their face, mm. things like that. Trying to approach those groups. The other vice presidential candidate, Elena Ivanova, is no stranger to student government's history of inefficiency. But her and running mate Izzy Finucci still believe the entity is a great avenue to incite change. I think that the biggest thing that has 
frustrated me with student government, honestly, is mm -hmm. in the past is um, they say all these things, they pass Although all this legislation, but it doesn't end up going anywhere. Um, the sometimes I think we ask someone like, oh, what is your implementation process for the legislation you passed? And they say, what's an implementation process? And that's crazy to me on the Senate side when we pass all of our legislation onto admin and make sure they get it. However, with that being said, um, the elected individuals in student government, the access they have to, to administrators, have the power to change so many things. So student government does currently have some of the, like, the best relationships and connections with administration and the people that can create change on this campus and permit change to happen. Though we would like to walk outside and be like, okay, no more rape on campus, that's not going to do anything. We need administration to put in place um, initiatives and different funding to go towards resources that are important in those regards to create that change. David Goldstein's senior thesis is long behind him. But he said if he had his way, the last chapter would be required reading for new student body presidents. I don't know that it's necessarily the definitive guide to success, um, but I think there's a lot of lessons there that would help bridge the gap between, you know, between years of student government and help them at least get started in the right direction for a successful presidency. You know, if the student body feels like their student, their elected representatives are representing them, then student government gets much higher marks than if they feel like, you know, these are just a bunch of political hacks in training who are, um, you know, you know, want to make some noise and, and kind of build their uh, political resumes um, or, you know, maybe a little less cynically people who are just advocating for interests that, you know, are really their own and not necessarily the student body, you know. So I, I you know, one of the conclusions that, that I came to was that the administrations that got the most done, I, I, I wouldn't say the most successful necessarily because success is in the eye of the beholder. But if you look back, the administrations that got the most done were the ones that dealt with whatever issues were of concern to the student body. Will voter turnout increase this year? Can the winning executive alliance break away from political self-interest and cut through all the administrative burnt orange tape to make the changes that students want? To find out, keep listening to The Rodeo.